Tumat Hashmanim, the defiling of the oils. Hashchatat Hamidot Vadeot is equal to, is tantamount, symbolizes the destruction of the traits, the characteristics, the midot, right, our morality, and the deot, and the ideas, the Jewish concepts. In other words, like many rabbis and those that explain that the shmanim, the shemen, is likened to wisdom, right? The shemen is the is wisdom, knowledge, but that itself already, just in those few words before we go on, that idea of that symbolism. What do you mean the oils? The Greeks went into the Beit Hamikdash and uh, defiled the oils that were there and the that were needed to light the menorah. So what is it symbolic here? It's talking about they defiled the ideas of Am Yisrael. They defiled the holiness of the traits of the characteristics. We'll see the purity of the family of holiness in family life and and, and relations. So which is it? Is it something symbolic, allegorical? Did it happen or didn't happen? It's symbolic. So that's the amazing phenomenon that it took place, literally, historically. It's like you have an author that writes a book. You have, I don't know, you learned in English literature, Hemingway, Shakespeare. And then you learn, what do you learn in the class? What's the symbolism, right? The waves symbolize life's man. And the bridge is the, the bridge over troubled waters. You have, everything is symbolic. Not every word, but the more the, that every detail is symbolic as a representation of inner content, the greater the author. Wow, how amazing that he put into these words a simple story, but there's meaning behind it. This person, this character represents the evil of mankind. What do you mean? There's a character, this guy called you know, Shlomo, whatever. But no, that character the author wrote that has symbolic meaning and content. And that's the, the beauty of the author, you know, the, his, of the beauty of the reading in literature, is to appreciate not just the surface story, which is fiction, right? But uh, the meaning that the author is trying to convey about society, about human culture, about nature, etc. What's amazing here is not only in fiction that there is symbolic meaning, but in the non-fiction of history. In other words, the author, capital A, the author of history, the mover of history, that all the details that took place, that took place in history, the reality, there were Greeks and there were Jews and the Maccabees and there was the temple and there was the oils, and all of that takes place, historically, has deeper meaning. In other words, it's so perfectly arranged by the arranger of history that that which took place historically with human free will and in, intrigues and going on, that is not by chance. Everything there has meaning, has a deeper meaning, has content. And that's why there's an obligation, the ability and the obligation to learn, to learn what happened, to learn what took place, to learn history. That's the verse in the Torah, the book of Dvarim. Remember the days of old. Binu shnot dor vador. Consider, analyze, binu, right? Litbonen, bina, wisdom. You know, with the analysis. And analyze the generations of, uh, the translate in English, the, the many, years of many generations. Ask your father what took place, he will tell you. In other words, history. But history, from, with the point of view of uh, recognizing the hand, the mover behind history. This isn't some fiction with symbolic meaning. It's even more amazing that the fact that it actually took place, and yet it has different meaning. It has symbolic, true meaning. Depends what vision you see things in, the X-ray vision, that enables you to see beneath the surface of the events that took place. Yes, there was Avram Avinu, the, the father and the mothers and the maidservants, and all of that yet is very deep under the building of the house of Israel. So too here.
This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine. You are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. The Festival of Hanukkah here in the land of Israel, broadcasting from the mountain where I live, which happened to be the partisan camp of the Maccabee underground in the festival that we're celebrating in the second century BCE. The revolt began in Modin, but uh, the partisan camp was up here in the Gofna Hills, very close to Betel, just north of modern-day Ramallah. Now, joining me on the show today is uh, Arya Shapiro. Arya Shapiro is a longtime contributor to Vision Magazine, often providing insights to how Jewish historiography tends to look at certain issues and events. He was a student organizer at Georgetown, made Aliyah to Israel, just recently finished his army service, and is preparing to come learn Torah at Machon Meir. Aryeh recently wrote a fascinating piece for Vision Magazine, applying some ideas from Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth to the Maccabean Revolt that we commemorate on Hanukkah. So I asked Aryeh to join me on the next stage to go a little bit deeper into the subject. Uh, Aryeh, welcome to the show. Hey, Rav Yehuda, Hanukkah Sameach. How's life, first of all, you know, finishing your army service, being uh, a free individual, so to speak, once again? Yeah, Baruch Hashem. It's good to, good to wrap up the army and, and return to um, as, a, as a free citizen in Eretz Israel, especially right now during Hanukkah, which is really a, a holiday to celebrate our freedom. Right. Although one of the points you made in your piece was the value of the individual, being part of the ideology of the colonizer and something we should probably discuss at some point, no? Absolutely, yeah. We'll definitely come back to that, but just to touch on it a little bit right now, definitely don't want anyone to think that just because I'm done with my formal national military service, my work serving and working to advance the goals of the Jewish people in history is anywhere close to done. That's very well said. In fact, I would argue that even though I think army service is complicated, uh, in this day and age, especially because of a lot of the policies that exist here. I do believe it's mitzvah. I think that it's something that like, is incumbent on us to do. This is the first time in thousands of years that the Jewish people have even had the opportunity to have our own military to defend ourselves and not to rely on others to defend us and to protect us. For sure. It's always been mitzvah deoraita to go to the Jewish army. And when Israel goes out to war, from the time that we were in the desert after having left slavery in Egypt, it was a mitzvah for every able-bodied male over the age of 20 to go and enlist in the Hebrew fighting force. That being said, I think there are several challenges with the Israeli army You know, in modern times which I think most of these challenges are probably expressions of our nation's identity crisis, uh, the lack of really clarifying for ourselves what we're doing here. For sure. There are a lot of policies that I think are very counterproductive and very alien to who we are. And in many ways, I felt as much as I thought that my army service was fulfilling. And, you know, certainly when I did my army service, I actually was in a very different place politically and ideologically. So maybe some things that would challenge me today didn't challenge me then. But I did find it fulfilling. But I also felt, and this speaks to what you said, that there was more I could be doing for Am Yisrael after the army, that the contribution I have to make to the rebirth of the Jewish people certainly didn't feel limited to service in the IDF. Absolutely. So first of all, Franz Fanon obviously has a lot to teach us about how colonialism works in the modern age, uh, but many might argue that it's anachronistic to apply his theories to events that took place before the capitalist stage of history. 
To what extent would you agree with that sentiment? Um, absolutely. There are, there are many parts of his writing uh, that are grounded in modern 19th and 20th century European capitalist colonialism that can't directly translate to or directly be applied to our historic national struggles from over 2000 years ago. Mm-hmm. But the key of understanding the, especially the colonized psychology, mm-hmm. the mindset of those living under colonial oppression and the way that psychology feeds into their violent outbreak into struggle against the colonizer, I think rings true as much to the Maccabean revolt as it does today. Right. And you also mentioned in your piece that the three classes that essentially exist within the colonial ecosystem that Fanon speaks of were very much in play at the time of the Maccabean revolt. Ah, yeah, for sure. Classifying the the strata of colonial society. So Fanon talks about uh, first uh, colonial or the colonizing class. And those are the uh, military and economic and political and even social and cultural forces that come from the imperial center, wherever that may be, to the country, the land that they're colonizing. Uh, in order to kind of enact the the will of the center on the the colonized, kind of in contrast to them, we've got the native class, the colonized, who it's important to remember prior to this colonial contact, the, the arrival of the colonizers, they were just an us. They were just a people who didn't see themselves in any kind of colonized or suppressed dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, but by nature of and the dynamics of colonization. As soon as someone comes as a colonizer, there by definition must also be a colonized. Uh, so the emergence of this colonized identity is going to be very central in you know, the psychology of how the colonized see themselves and respond to the colonizers, ultimately violently. And then you have kind of this intermediary class uh, coming from the, the colonized people, from the natives, but from among their wealthier, more educated, higher classes, Uh, that come to become a colonized intellectual class. They adopt a lot of the language and culture and trappings of the the colonizers in order to fit in with the new colonial order. And obviously they're gaining material and social benefits from this, this interaction, this exchange that they have with the colonizers. But often that comes at the expense of their own authentic national culture and identity and also their relationship with the rest of the native population. Okay, so this class, this what we call the the national bourgeoisie, you're identifying that as the Hellenist Jews or the Hellenized Jews of our story? Yeah, absolutely. I think we have kind of the clear economic advantages. Uh, They were literally funded and paid to create uh, Greek bathhouses, Greek markets, uh, and even Greek temples in the heart of Judea. Culturally, they were obviously expected to dress like the Greeks and not circumcise their children like the Greeks, speak Greek like the Greeks, and all of this as a way to make Judea and especially Jerusalem uh, one more city in the, the Greek sphere of influence as part of the Greek empire at the time. Right, and just to be clear, they weren't merely doing this for personal economic benefit. In many cases, these Jews genuinely related to Greek civilization as superior, as more enlightened, as more desirable than their native culture. 
I mean, obviously, I think there might be subconscious interests that come along with aping the colonizer. But at the same time, consciously, it appears that these Jews, the national bourgeoisie that we're speaking of, certainly were interested in becoming Hellenized, certainly were interested in participating in Greek life. Absolutely. And Judean civilization at the time wasn't wasn't perfect. We're already in the, the Second Temple era. We're not living at the peak of Jewish independence or Jewish authentic life in our homeland. We've been through one very serious round of exile already in Babylon. And those of us who've returned, who are already a minority, are obviously living and dealing with the repercussions of, of emerging from that exile still. So we're identifying the Hellenized Jews, the like more affluent Hellenized Jews, the upper class of Judea as the national bourgeoisie. And we're saying that the natives, for the most part, like the average farmer, the average tanner, the average teacher. Yeah. And even the average shopkeeper in Jerusalem. It's not just a a rural kind of backwater class, but it's a broader spectrum of everyone who's not at the top. Right. So you're saying the nation as a whole is, for the most part, the colonized natives in this scenario. Absolutely. Although I would make the argument that at the beginning, meaning before the revolt broke out, I think a significant percentage of the masses were behind the Hellenists simply because they appeared to be powerful, you know, and the Greeks were with them and no one was really challenging their authority. And it just seemed like that was the side to support. Those were the positions to support in Judean society at that time. Absolutely. I also think it's really important to, to remember that there's... There's over 150 years of Greek occupation in Judea for this culture to kind of evolve and develop and spread within Judean society and for this process of Hellenization to occur uh, before ultimately uh, Antiochus Epiphanes comes up to power and in response the Hashemunayim launch a revolt against him. Right. Because of his edicts directly attacking their culture, their native way of life, their Torah. Right, in, entrenching the, the 150 years of cultural processes, uh, politically and systemically. Meaning before those edicts that directly attacked our traditional way of life, most of Judean society was for the most part going along with this and kind of uh, synthesizing, you know, Greek culture with Judean culture and, you know, our values with their values. And it kind of became very, you know, for lack of a better term, modern orthodox. Right, it's notable that of the family of Kaanim Gdolim in the in the era. Uh, we obviously have Matityahu, the son of Yohanan, who was a previous Kohen Gadol. But we've also got, at the same time, a pair of brothers of Kaanim Gdolim who fight amongst themselves over the degree to which Hellenization within Jerusalem and even within the temple is acceptable. But we had a situation where for the most part, and when I say, you know, when I made the comment about modern Orthodox, I think what I really mean is that I think it was prevalent in Judean society at that time, certainly for the upper class, but probably for a lot more of the population as well, to be performing Jewish rituals and celebrating Jewish festivals according to our traditional folk ways, according to halacha, but looking at the world, or at least beginning to look at the world, through a very Greek lens like behaving as Jews, you know, holding to the dietary laws of our people and to the basic traditions and laws of our people, but developing a perception of the world that was very much not ours. It was very much that of the colonizer. Right. Their their practice of Jewish tradition was still 
authentically Jewish, but the way they they saw it and uh, the broader world and especially their relationship with the Seleucid Empire was definitely not as in tune with our authentic Jewish traditions. Right, and we're saying that um, the colonizer class in this case is, of course, the Syrian Greek Empire. Right. So this is basically how we would apply Fanon's basic framework to the situation in Judea prior to the Maccabean Revolt. For sure. You have the colonized class, that's the Judean masses, many of whom have passively bought into Hellenism, at least on a, what we'll call an ideological level, like in, in the Gramscian sense, meaning that there is an ideology of Greece that has permeated Judean society, even if most of Judean society is still living according to our ways. Right, and that goes back to the point I made earlier about the, the psychology after the colonial contact is the fact that they have become a colonized class just by nature of their being a colonizer automatically creates a environment in which they see themselves as colonized by Greece. And they, they begin to see themselves not as Judeans living in Judea, but as Judeans living under Greek domination. Right. Letting that Greek essence into their self-identification um, according to Fanon, at least, makes a really big step in distancing themselves from an authentically Hebrew mindset and worldview. Right. So we're saying that the colonized class are the Hebrew masses. We're saying that the colonizer class is the Syrian Greek Empire. They're soldiers and administrators. And the in-between class, right, what we're calling the colonized intellectual right. class, that's the Hellenist, the Hellenized Jews. Exactly. Okay. So, that, so that's the basic framework. And Fanon also criticizes certain manifestations of nationalism that can emerge from the national bourgeoisie. Uh, he alerts us to the dangers of a shallow national consciousness emerging that's out of touch with the masses and indigenous cultures and instead kind of apes the culture of the former colonizer. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but I think this is a relevant question to what happens after the revolt. Um, yeah, so I think specifically the kind of political developments is one of the areas in which Fanon's broader theory is a little bit harder to apply, simply because the, the political structures of modern parliamentary democracies and party politics are just radically foreign to the kingdoms and empires and even commonwealths uh, that existed in the, the era of Hanukkah story. But obviously, there are still little threads, especially, again, in that, that psychological uh, understanding that Fanon applies that are, that are really apt. I think one of the, the biggest essences is this, this idea that the national bourgeoisie that emerges from this colonized intellectual class after the victory, after we've won, really has a hard time breaking materially uh, and intellectually with the, the colonizing power. The, there's a big sense that in order for this newly liberated uh, nation to survive, especially economically, that they need to be dependent in trade and in production on assistance from the foreign forces that they just got rid of from their country. You know, it might be interesting to apply this whole conversation to the Jewish anti-colonial struggle during the British Mandate period and the early years of the State of Israel with the labor Zionist Mapai Party, of course, playing the role of the national bourgeoisie. But for now, let's keep the conversation focused on Judea during the Maccabean period. Uh, the leading Hellenist Jews who actively sided with the empire 
were for the most part defeated by the Maccabees. But following the liberation of our land and the establishment of the Hasmonean dynasty, we see the descendants of our guerrilla leaders ultimately forming a new ruling class that did buy in to certain aspects of Greco-Roman civilization. And we can see this clearly in some of their policies, and we can even see it in many of the names they give their children. So I'd argue that following the success of any anti-colonial struggle, it's imperative for the colonized society to have a post-colonial conversation, a conversation about what was done to us, how we were affected, and what kind of society do we want to create? What identity and what values should be expressed through the policies and institutions of the state we're trying to create now? And this clearly did not take place following the success of the Maccabean Revolt, just like it didn't take place following the success of our revolt against the British Empire in the 1940s. But to what extent would you say that this directly led, this lack of a post-colonial conversation, directly led to the Romans being able to ultimately step in and take control? I think it's absolutely no coincidence that less than 100 years after we liberated ourselves from one empire, these kings, these descendants of the, the Maccabees, are willing to accept and as the generations continue actively collaborate with and work under the puppet masters of an increasingly powerful roman empire in the mediterranean well to be fair not all of them did absolutely not all of them there were definitely hasmonians who even though they might have lost touch with many of the values that had driven the revolt of their ancestors were still willing to fight kill and die to resist foreign rule not everyone, but for the most part, I think uh, it really took the, for the Romans to be able to really step in and take control, they, they needed to use the Herodians. They needed to supplant the Hasmonean dynasty with the Herodian dynasty. Right, absolutely. Um, I think the, the Herodian dynasty, though, also uh, kind of serves as a fascinating example. They're obviously descended from the Edomites, who a few centuries before had been slaves to the the Judean kings who had conquered their territory. Uh, Many of them were naturalized into Am Yisrael. And over the course of a couple centuries, they they raised to the level of power and connectedness to the ruling classes of Hasmonean Judea that allowed them to stand as viable candidates for Roman patronage. Right. That slavery and naturalization is actually very interesting. It was uh, Yohanan Herkinus, who was the son of Shimon ben Matatyahu, the last surviving son of Matatyahu Hashmonai. And what Yohanan Herkinus mm-hmm. had done was he basically conquered the Edomites, enslaved them, and set them free. And what that right. essentially did was make them all official naturalized Jews. Like that made them Hebrews. That's just like a halachic trick that... Right. Easy conversion. Right. Like if a Jew has a slave, a non-Jewish slave, and sets that slave free, that slave automatically becomes a full Jew. It's just something interesting that a lot of people don't know. You know, there's a lot of confusion surrounding the story of the Herodian dynasty, the origins of the Herodian dynasty. Like, where did they come from? Were they Jews or were they not Jews? And to this day, you know, this is hotly debated and a lot of people don't realize that what actually happened was they were conquered by the Hasmoneans, enslaved, set free, and that made them Jews. They were still Gerim, like they still have the status of Gerim halachically, which has certain limitations, especially when it comes to becoming king. But really the Hasmoneans shouldn't have become kings either because they were Kohanim, they were from my tribe, 
and we are not supposed to be kings. We are supposed to be priests. And there is a very clear separation in our national formation. You know, different tribes have different roles in terms of who is responsible for what. And uh, this was clearly an example of Kohanim overstepping our boundaries and trying to usurp the role of another tribe. Right. It's interesting that you specifically uh, bring up that point. Uh, one of the other weak points that I think Fanon generally has is his understanding of the role that religion can play in uh, radical post-colonial revolutions. Generally, he sees them as an inhibiting factor uh, because he's operating in a context mostly of Western Christianity that's been spread throughout Africa and through the Caribbean. Uh, He kind of sees it as a turn-the-other-cheek mentality that uh, enables the colonizer and the national bourgeoisie to pacify the masses. But I think from a obviously more Hebrew perspective, we don't see that problem internally, which is why the Maccabees as Kohanim, as religious leaders, as priests in the Beit HaMikdash, see absolutely no contradiction between serving Hashem authentically in the Beit HaMikdash and raising arms against colonial occupiers. They were clearly serving Hashem with their weapons in the battlefield. I mean, this points to a very important distinction between religions and our Torah. Like a lot of people often try to categorize our Torah as a religion, like Islam, or right. Christianity, or Buddhism. But in truth, our civilization definitely has a legal component and a spiritual component alongside you know, territorial and national components. And while we were in exile for many, many centuries, without the national component and without the territorial component, all we really had was the kind of legal and spiritual aspects of our identity. And a couple hundred years ago, around the Enlightenment period, there were Jewish leaders who, you know, maybe even in exile, we can consider somewhat of a uh, colonized intellectual class who wanted to be Europeans and who jumped at the opportunities presented by the French and German governments to allow us inclusion in those lands and essentially remade, like recreated, recrafted our identity, not as, you know, refugees from the land of Israel yearning to go home, but rather as Frenchmen and Germans with a religion called Judaism. That's really the birth of what we today call Judaism or this concept of there being like a Jewish religion alongside, you know, other major religions of the world. So Fanon might be 100% correct when it comes to Christianity, that for the most part, I mean, there, there have been, you know, there's like liberation theology and like liberatory manifestations of Christianity. But for the most part, I would say that Christianity has been a tool of social control throughout most of its history, certainly for colonized peoples. And with us, it's the opposite, because the Maccabim were functioning within a paradigm that it was very clear the Torah commands us to fight to free our land. You know, it's interesting when we talk about this war, which we haven't really done, we spoke about the pre-revolutionary period and the post-revolutionary period, meaning we kind of skipped over that 26-year guerrilla struggle. And I I would say that one of the things that we should be sensitive to uh, always are the internal disagreement, the internal arguments taking place within any given society, especially a colonized society, especially our colonized society. And the Maccabim took the position, as do many of our sages throughout history, that we are absolutely commanded in every generation to liberate our land from foreign rule and to establish Hebrew independence. Now, the bulk of their army 
was comprised of a group called the Hasidim, who didn't necessarily take this position, but because they felt oppressed by the empire's laws against Shabbat, against Rosh Chodesh, meaning against our calendar, against Brit Milah, circumcision, against learning Torah, they were willing to take up arms and engage in an anti-colonial struggle to free our land. But once, you know, once Antiochus IV had died and uh, Lysias was essentially in charge, I mean, Antiochus V, the, the emperor's son, was officially in control, but Lysias was for the most part running his kingdom. Lysias offered us peace, um, the annulment of all of the decrees against our culture, traditional way of life, in exchange for us stopping the revolt, in exchange for us accepting our place as part of their empire. And the Hasidim said yes, and the Maccabim said no. And that greatly depleted our forces, greatly divided us, uh, might have directly led to the death of Yudha Maccabi, who ended up being killed in battle, in the Battle of Bachidis, largely because he didn't have sufficient manpower. He didn't have enough fighters with him to be able to withstand the mercenaries that the empire threw at him. But I, I think it's important for us to understand how complicated this guerrilla struggle was, meaning we're talking about a 26-year protracted war that, um, I mean, it started as a as like a guerrilla struggle, you know, with fighters coming down from the mountains and, and attacking with all sorts of techniques to make the Greek formations. You know, someone asked me the other day, how were the Maccabim able to withstand or overcome the phalanx? I don't know if you're, are you familiar with phalanx military tactics? Yeah, we've got lined up troops, creating kind of a wall of, of arms that's basically impossible to, to penetrate, especially with cavalry, but also with infantry. Right, and they had these like turtle formations that they would, you know, with their shields, create this kind of turtle where it was, they're basically making themselves impenetrable. But what the Maccabim had that they were able to use to their advantage was the land, meaning they knew the geography, they knew the topography, you know, this was their homeland. They grew up out of this land and they were able to lure enemy soldiers, at least in the beginning of the revolt, this was very much their, the tactic under Yudha Maccabee's leadership. They would lure the enemy soldiers into very narrow passes between mountains to make the Greek military formations impossible. So they'd kind of be stuck, unable to do what they were trained to do, while the Maccabeem would first of all rain down arrows you know, the Greeks would call it Judean rain when the sky would fill with these short arrows that would just kind of come crashing down on all of the all of the occupation soldiers. But then, you know, after that, just kind of rushed down from the mountains with just like this ferociousness that just kind of paralyzed the enemy soldiers with fear. And, uh, and of course, then we would take them out. These were the tactics we used early on, but eventually we got to the point, I think under Yonatan's leadership and later Shimon's leadership, we got to the point where we were actually able to meet the enemy on the battlefield, square off in the conventional military manner. You know, and, and by then, of course, the Maccabee underground had shifted, had been transformed by Yonatan from a, essentially a terrorist organization to a political party with a military wing. But I think what's interesting is, you know, as we were saying before, what happens at the end of all this is that even though the Hellenists who had opposed the Maccabim, who were essentially standing on the other side of Judean society with the occupier, with the empire, even though they were defeated along with the empire, from the family 
of those who led the struggle for freedom came essentially a colonized intellectual class that took power. Absolutely, and I think, think the interaction with Rome is key to understanding that. Um, obviously, we've got different mindsets, different ideologies that Greece and Rome each represented in their day. Um, From our perspective, our understanding of history, or you're saying in general? You're saying that the Greeks and the Romans saw themselves radically differently, or you're saying they played different roles from a Hebrew perspective of history? Or both? Um, both. Um, we specifically uh, identify them as very different forces, uh, Greece being Yavan, one of the sons of Yafet, kind of represents Europe in general, uh, and more of a aesthetic beauty as their one of their prime ideologies. Whereas Rome, as the inheritors of Edom and Edesav, play the role more as a, more of our immediate counter and kind of arch nemeses in history as the alternative inheritors of Abraham and Yitzchak that represent Gvura and a physical might and strength and power that we don't need to reject as much as learn to use ourselves. To use for the sake of our goals. Right. Um, but also in kind of broader historical terms, and we see this a little bit reflecting the Jewish historiography. Obviously, you've got the differences between Greek uh, philosophy and uh, democracy are pretty radically different than the more militaristic and ordered Roman nature, especially after it becomes an empire, but even in its early stages as a republic. Right. And uh, also, you know, when it comes to the relationship between the different forces in Judean society, one thing I wanted to mention before, and I was maybe trying to get to and talking about how the Judean masses, even though they were colonized for over a century, had essentially sided with the Hellenized Jews, with the Hellenized Jewish leadership, simply because those leaders seemed to be strong, connected to the empire, um, they might have been seen as responsible, able to interact with the rest of the world to the benefit of the Jewish people. Once the Maccabees started winning, I mean, that's really where the tide turned. You see that the colonized masses began to side with the freedom fighters once the freedom fighters began to actually win. And I think this desire for freedom, you know, really only manifested once the fight began. You know, the fight likely would have never taken place had Antiochus IV not outlawed so many central aspects of our culture and identity. But because he did outlaw those aspects of our culture and identity, Matityahu was able to lead a revolt. People did follow him, people who otherwise might not have, like the Hasidim, who, like I said before, comprised the bulk of his military force. And I think just the fact that we began to fight and had actually experienced ourselves as being oppressed, that led to desire for freedom. Meaning even though we can say that the Torah had already been commanding us to fight to free our land, meaning if, if there's a mitzvah for Matityahu to fight to free our land when he did, that mitzvah existed previously. That mitzvah existed for the more than 100 years of Greek control before that. Uh, but we didn't fight until the empire actually behaved in such a way that made us feel oppressed. And then once the fighting began, the will of the nation quickly got behind it. Absolutely. And I think uh, Fanon actually has a passage that may be my favorite passage of, of his work 
uh, Wretched of the Earth, that speaks so, so aptly to this. It's a little bit surprising it wasn't written about the Maccabean struggle. I'll, I'll read, read it briefly if that's all right. Sure. Wherever an authentic liberation struggle has been fought, wherever the blood of the people has been shed and the armed phase has lasted long enough to encourage the intellectuals to withdraw to their rank and file base, there is an effective eradication of the superstructure borrowed by these intellectuals from the colonialist bourgeois circles. In its narcissistic monologue, the colonialist bourgeoisie, by way of its academics, had implanted in the minds of the colonized that the essential values, meaning Western values, remain eternal despite all errors attributable to man. The colonized intellectual accepted the cogency of these ideas, and there in the back of his mind stood a sentinel on guard, guarding the Greco-Roman pedestal. But during the struggle for liberation, when the colonized intellectual touches base again with his people, this artificial sentinel is smashed to smithereens. All the Mediterranean values, the triumph of the individual, of enlightenment and beauty, turn into pale, lifeless trinkets. All those discourses appear a jumble of dead words. Those values, which seemed to ennoble the soul, prove worthless because they have nothing in common with the real life struggle in which the people are engaged. Hmm. Oh, it's very fitting here. I think that very much speaks to what happened. As soon as the Maccabim began to experience victory, the masses quickly shifted to support them instead of supporting the Hellenized ruling class. Exactly because a key to this Greek culture was the idea of right and truth and beauty and the physical form and the early Maccabee victories kind of broke the image of that perfection. Once there's a, a nick in that, that image, then all of it comes crumbling down because it doesn't have this perfect universalizing essence anymore. So one thing I did want to point out, and this is relevant to the Parshiot we're currently going through in our, in our yearly cycle of learning our Torah, and anyone who's interested in going deeper into these ideas can check out our sister podcast on the weekly Torah portion. Subscribing to the next stage will automatically get you those as well. But one of the ideas we've been exploring there are the different forces within Israel, the force of Yosef and the force of Judah specifically. And I would argue that the Hellenized ruling class of Judea leading up to the Maccabean revolt very much were expressing, I would say, very much manifested as a very extreme expression of Yosef. And when we talk about the force of Yosef, I think within Israeli identity, within Hebrew identity, the force of Yosef represents that which we share in common with the other nations of the world, specifically the dominant nations. I think there's an emphasis or an overemphasis on the material well-being of the Jewish people, you know, security, economy, things like that. And of course, there's a huge danger of being swallowed up into foreign cultures. There's a desire to kind of attach the Jewish people to these big, powerful empires. That's all part of Yosef. And Yosef has, like all forces, you know, there's a positive and negative, and there's healthy and unhealthy. So I think that the Hellenists very much represented an extreme unhealthy manifestation of Yosef. Whereas Yehuda, the force of Yehuda, very much focuses on what's unique about Am Yisrael, what's unique about the Jewish people, what's special about us, what's different about us, 
our culture, our identity, our Torah, you know, and uh, you see these, you know, different forces manifested very clearly in the kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah that existed after the split, after Shlomo's death, Solomon's death. When the kingdom split, you have the kingdom of Israel, which was essentially, for the most part, the kingdom of Yosef, for the most part, ruled by kings from the sub-tribe of Ephraim, who's the son of Yosef, and the kingdom of Judah was ruled by the Davidic dynasty. And even though we learn today from the perspective of Jewish history that the kingdom of Judah was the more important kingdom, the more relevant kingdom, most Jews in the world today descend from that kingdom. It was the tribes of Yehuda, Shimon, Levi, and Benjamin for the most part. If we were living at that time, we probably would have seen the kingdom of Israel as the more important kingdom. They were connected to the rest of the world. They were stronger economically, diplomatically, militarily. Um, the trade routes ran through their territory. They had the coast. Uh, they were much more of a player on the world stage at the time. But it's interesting when you see, just like Rachel and Leah, you know, the kingdom of Israel, the tribe of Yosef, the, the tribes of Yosef descend from Rachel, while the tribe of Judah descends from Leah. And Rachel was very much the temporal, the, the moment, you know, beauty, whereas Leah really represented with her, what we call her like weak eyes, so to speak, Leah represented eternity. Leia represented, you know, the marathon, not the sprint. And of course, we need both. There are definitely times in history where we need Yosef. You know, Zionism is a great example of this. I think we can look at Zionism very much as the movement, the messianic movement of Yosef, you know, the material rebuilding of the nation of Israel and its land. But there comes a moment where Zionism doesn't really know what to do with itself anymore where the state of Israel doesn't know what to do with itself anymore, where there are challenges that Zionism just can't answer, and that's where Yehuda needs to step in, and we need to actually provide vision and direction to this vessel, this powerful material vessel that Yosef has built. So a lot of the way I understand the Maccabean revolt is really a cultural conflict between the force of Judah in a very extreme form. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. The Maccabim definitely represented an extreme expression of Judah, just as the Hellenists represented a very extreme expression of Yosef. Absolutely, yeah. That's, I think, an important way from an authentically Hebrew perspective to kind of contextualize this struggle and this conflict. Absolutely. And I think going back a little bit to our conversation about the, the later failures of the kingdom, I think ultimately the fact that we had Levim, Kohanim, dealing not just with the spiritual and the internal health of the, the kingdom, but also responsible for the politicking as well as the ruling and the priesting could very well be part of the key to their their failure in resisting the, the appeal of Roman rule. Right. So one more thing I want to touch upon before I let you go. You mentioned in your piece, and we can link to it in the show notes, that, you know, this is, it's even in the title, right? You called the Hanukkah Fanon and the failure of individualism. So where's the failure of individualism here? What's the relationship between everything we've been speaking about until now and individualism? So ultimately, I think one of the keys to understanding the draw of Greek culture to uh, the Hellenists at the time is the importance and the value that the Greek culture of the time and Greco-Roman culture to this day places on the individual and specifically individual liberty. Classical, traditional Judean society was incredibly collective mm -hmm. and familial in its essence, 
and there's a sense in this new free Greek culture that I can choose to do what I want. And that even creates this allowance for what you mentioned as kind of a modern orthodoxy of this Hellenism, that it's totally okay to stay Jewish ritually, internally, individually, but I also have the freedom and the individual freedom to explore Greek culture and explore the bathhouse and the Pantheon. And that quickly, quickly begins to kind of spitball into something a lot more dangerous, which becomes the loss of the collective in the Jewish society. And as soon as we are not working for Klal Yisrael, for all of Am Yisrael, but are just worrying about ourselves and our own ritual practice, uh, there's really a breakdown in Jewish communal life, which is essential to millennia of Jewish history. Right, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I would say that one of the fundamental differences between Western civilization and Hebrew civilization is that Western civilization puts the material well-being of the individual at the center, while Hebrew civilization very much puts the moral well-being of the collective at the center. I think that's a good way to kind of uh, summarize this conflict. Absolutely. And uh, Fanon specifically addresses that as well, the idea of individualism that is actively promoted to make it more difficult to resist colonialism. If each individual is just worrying about themselves, they can't band together with their brothers, their sisters, their comrades in an anti-colonial struggle because they're worried about their own necks. Mm -hmm. But the second you start to see yourself as part of a collective, as part of a nation, uh, the way the Maccabim ultimately did and led their, their neighbors to as well, um, it becomes really easy to put the, the good of the nation ahead of your own neck and be willing to risk everything to go to war against the greatest military power of your day. Which ultimately leads to our celebration of Hanukkah. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Arya Shapiro, thank you so much for joining me. I wish you a Hanukkah Sameach. And we'll, of course, link in the show notes to where listeners can see your writing at Vision Magazine. Thank you, Rav Yehuda. This is Yudak Kohen, Vision Movement. You're listening to the Next Stage podcast. Be sure to subscribe at whatever platform you most enjoy listening to content. You can check out the show notes to this episode at visionmag.org backslash the next stage for two. Hanukkah Sameach. Ki la, ha ya.
ושיעבוד מלכות עגלה ובידו הגדולה הוציא את הסגולה חן פרעה וכל זרו ירדו כאבן במצולה ירדו כאבן במצולה Shiva 
again.